Hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm well, Mark. Great to be with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It is absolutely my pleasure. Uh, you know that the, the the funny thing is there is a there is a funny story um, uh, that's that's led up to this to this. So we were meant to do an episode together about 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 a year and a half ago, right there or thereabouts. That's right. And I was just kind of going through my emails, and I was just like, "My God, what 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 happened?" And then I. I thought, you know what, I need to, uh, I had such an amazing initial conversation with Mark. It was, it was like, um, uh, you know, uh, t- uh, two friends who had known each other for, for, for a while talking. And um, uh, I got in contact and you were um, uh, so extraordinarily uh, helpful. And you were just like, yeah, let, let, let's do it. And we are here now, a year and a half later, with, with so much more to tell as well. I love it. Two extraordinarily curious nerds on a journey of discovery. <laughs> Absolutely. Let us set sail. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. So it's, you know, I have to say I'm, I'm super, super excited to be able to have you on the show now. I, I, I genuinely am. Um, I am. I am loaded with, with liars um, uh, cocktails now, thanks to your man, Danny. Um which was a very interesting experience. I was just telling you about it before we start recording. Uh, so I have to thank you for 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 kind of making that happen. Uh, honestly, it really does mean a lot. You're very welcome. And look, Danny's, uh, he's one of what we call our brand ambassadors. Uh, there's around 40 of those in our business. Um, but he's a true advocate for the non-alcoholic um, cocktail category. And you can take a walk with Danny through London and it's constant hugs. Every 15 to 20 people knows him on the street and runs up, Danny! So, yeah, for Local someone that's just this, absolutely, just this gregarious extrovert that, you know, is the pure embodiment of joy of living and on earth. He's uh, he's a really wonderful person to have on the team. So I'm glad that, uh, we were able to spare Danny to walk you through Mixology 101 at home. It was absolutely uh, eye-opening. It really was. And uh, I, I love your description of him because uh, exactly that's how I signed off our conversation. I, I, I essentially said, Danny, I want to get you on the show because it seems as though you have this personality that just brings light into anyone's day. Um, I think I described him as being someone who allows me to miss my morning espresso. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> That's actually a really, really apt descriptor for Danny. And I love it. Yeah, he's he's just su- such a lovely guy, and it makes perfect sense that you have these kind of guys, you know, talking to you and 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 spending a bit of time with you. It makes perfect sense that these are the kind of individuals that you decide are the right uh, um, individuals who fit your kind of culture fit, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, and I, I I think that the kind of individuals that you use as your ambassadors and essentially your representatives. Uh, is is very descriptive on the kind of business that you run, um, so yeah, you know, to, total props for that. It 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 truly is fantastic. I have a great deal of admiration what you've been able to to build. I I was I was filled with admiration a year and a half ago, and now all you need to do is just look at the news runs that have come across since a year and a half yeah. ago, and uh, you're like, whoa. That that's some serious stuff. So before before we get into that, Mark, for my audience who maybe haven't been able to spend the time that I have with you, why don't you uh, give a bit of an introduction? Who are you? Uh, what you do? Uh, what do you do? And who are liars? Sure. Um, yeah. Look, be delighted. Um, so I'm Mark Living's the founder and CEO of Liars Non Alcoholic Spirits Company. 
Um, this is a journey we started five or six years ago. Um, we saw an opportunity to develop non-alcoholic analogues of the world's most celebrated alcoholic spirits. Um, I'm 41 now and my relationship with alcohol has changed and evolved. Um, you can probably hear in my accent, I'm Australian as well, which means hard drinking was definitely part of my formative years. Um, but we all grow up eventually. We hope some don't, but most do. Um, and there was a gap, uh, I guess, in, in my life and I saw a gap in the market. So we set about creating these spirits and it took us around three years to get the recipes right. Um, it took a, a journey um, of several trips around the world to find ingredients, manufacturing, and we ended up landing in Germany working with um, arguably the world's most um, uh, innovative beverage company there. Um, and um, even working with those guys, it did take us an incredibly long time to get our liquids right. And we launched in July 2019. And I'll just give you a quick highlight reel so we can jump into the meat of it. Um, you know, the team's around 75 people uh, at the moment. We um, are available now in 51 countries. Um, we believe we'll be over 60 by the end of the year. Um, we're the most awarded range of non-alcoholic spirits in the world. We've got more than 200 uh, international wine and spirits medals um, for our portfolio, which we're extraordinarily proud of. Um, and our business um, is venture-backed, much like a Silicon Valley-style tech company. And um, earlier in the year, we uh, we broke through a valuation of uh, £100 million, and we're just in the process of closing our Series A at the moment. So it's a truly, truly exciting time to be at the helm of this business. Um, I'm humbled um, by the public's response to the range and how embracing the public and the hospitality sector has been of these products to create a new category. Um, and I just had some, uh, some metrics handed to me by our CFO last week. Um, he said to me, Mark, he said, you realise we've sold our millionth bottle this month? And I'm just... That just blew me away because, you know, this sort of started as a, you know, something of interest that became an obsession that then became a business that then became a multinational beverage company. Um, so just thinking about, you know, a million bottles of our spirits out there in the world and they've been enjoyed, it's, um, it's pretty crazy and very humbling. And uh, the second metric that really floored me that he, he gave me says, hey, the other thing is we now sell a bottle of Liars every 30 seconds You're somewhere kidding. in the world no and um that one blew me away as well so i just had to sit and think about that for a few moments and reflect what, what, on what goes through your head we've created. You, when, you, when you think about that when you kind of cast your mind back and you're like hang on a second every 30 seconds someone's buying something that i created something that we created what goes through your head yeah, it's it's a strange thing i don't think um I don't think we're equipped as humans to, to, to think about that level of global impact. Um, so I, I, I think the synapses in the brain just don't fire and you go, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought we'd achieve anything like that. But, um, you know, the fact that it's still accelerating, Omar, is truly exciting. And um, 
for me, I set an ambition to my team earlier this year. I said, we're not going to stop until we have a bottle of liars behind every bar in the world. Mm. Um, and, you know, we talked about Danny earlier and um, he's a real embodiment of the team's esprit de corps. We're really working hard to change the way the world drinks and bring these sophisticated, elevated options to the hospitality sector and in, into people's homes um, as hard as we can. And um, we've got some incredible tailwinds behind us. The health and mindfulness trend is is really gathering momentum. It's been building up ahead of steam now for almost 15 years and it's increasingly important to people and um, our beverage is a real beneficiary of that coming through. No, it's really quite interesting and you know, I, I remember when I cast my mind back uh, to our initial discussion that we had, uh, I remember you were you were kind of talking uh, in, in in very, very admirable terms of of Seedlip, which is um, mm. um, uh, a, a brand that probably most people um, have heard of now. And um, you were kind of talking about the Diageo um, uh, uh, acquisition and saying that that's where we kind of want to go. And you, you said something earlier that this is a really exciting time to be at the helm of uh, a company. But I think that's probably doing you a disservice because Liars now, a year and a half later, is arguably at the helm of the entire industry. Um, yeah, so I think that's, that's really right. fairly quite interesting. And, you know, it's, it, yeah, it, it, seems, it seems as though that, that the respect of those guys who are who were kind of anti um, uh, non-alcoholic or anti anti no and low, um, those kind of traditional, uh, for lack of a better word, traditional snobs. Um, it seems as though that no other brand has been able to bring them over to the side that you don't need an alcoholic drink like Liars has. So in my opinion, you know, it's it's funny to think about that initial conversation that we had and to see where you guys are today. Yeah, look, the um, enormous amount of respect for Seedlip and the work that the team did there. Um, and it's it's moved on to greener pastures sitting in the Diageo portfolio. So, you know, hats off. That's, I think, most beverage founders' objective is to, you know, see it move into a, a massive multinational machine. Um, they certainly laid the groundwork for the category. They captured a first mover advantage. Um, but for Liars, I think we've well and truly captured um, the first scalar advantage. Yes. Um, our growth, we're a hyper growth company and we're outpacing the growth of the category, which means wow. we are winning most of the new consumers that come into the space and we're stealing share from the other brands or a combination of the two. Um, and it's, a, it's still a very exciting time to be at the, the head of a business like this. Um, one thing that I find very interesting is um, you can look this up online. It's it's the the theory of the heroic inventor, and it's a um, um, I won't say it's a logical fallacy, but it's a misconception that's very common in humanity. We think that there's a man or woman that um, pioneers something, you know, has this breakthrough, and then single handedly takes it to the world. Mm. The reality is, and it's shown time and time again, and I guess the most um, salient example at the moment is Silicon Valley versus Israel versus Amsterdam versus Sao Paulo, you name it. There's businesses um, and there's founders that see the same opportunity, have the same impetus to create something, 
at uh, the same time. Uh, and some of them move to market faster than others. But almost always, it's a number of people working on the problem or seeking to capitalize on the opportunity at the same time in many different parts of the world. And I mentioned we began, um, you know, close to six years ago now. So, you know, we took three years to get our liquids right into market. So we missed that first move advantage. But based on what I've been able to see is we sort of started to work on the opportunity and see the opportunity around the same time as uh, some of the first movers in the category like Seedlip. Um, so I thought you might find that very interesting as the, uh, it's, it's in human nature just to gravitate towards the heroic inventor. Yes. Um, but the reality is it's, uh, it's usually something that happens out there in the collective miasma of humanity. I, I, I totally agree. And in fact, it, it, I would even go a step further to say with this kind of technological boom that we've been having, you know, it's totally indicative of Silicon Valley. Um, mm. is unfortunately the heroic inventor uh, typically is the individual who makes a product and because it's so because it's so um, it's it's almost beta it's it's not the best version of what it could potentially be unfortunately the heroic inventor tends to be lost in history um, you know where where now yeah. we've got, I mean people don't remember Motorola was the company that created the mobile phone uh, but what we do remember is that iPhone were the f uh, Apple were the first ones to create a multi-touch display. That's what we remember. We don't remember that Motorola created the industry. Yeah, it's a, there's a there's an old adage um, that sums it up very nicely. It's 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 rather aggressive, but you know those who paved the way are often paved over. Um, and <laughs> that's a great one. Yeah, look, that's the nature of of, of business in the 21st century. I think there's um, you know enormous iteration in highly compressed timeframes. And yes. um, often it's an arms race to win the most users at the beginning of a product. Um, and look, Omar, your head of product background experience here is, is, you can talk to this a lot better than I can, but I guess one of our great insights was that that style of building and scaling a business um, doesn't just belong to the software sector. So we theorized that you could take the Silicon Valley style business systems and apply them to a consumer product. So I'm a founder of a technology company, as is my co-founder, Carl Hartman. Um, he's built, scaled and exited a logistics tech company. Um, he's also a co-founder of another software company because he likes to spin a lot of plates. Sure. Um, as why, as most the, entrepreneurs uh, tend to enjoy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this uh, creative restlessness that seems to curse us yeah, <laughs> through like life. A, a serial fiddler. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Um, but the one of our big theorems uh, was could we marry Silicon Valley-style business systems to a traditional consumer product category? And Liars is the extension of that initial hypothesis. You know, can we create a small Navy SEAL-style team of people that are incredibly high-performing that deliver enormous results at the industrial level? How do we empower them and have accountability live at the edge with execution so mm -hmm. there's not some kind of bloated central management structure slowing things down can we raise capital and burn through it chasing revenue growth and user acquisition per se but in a consumer brands context that's how do we get that liquid to lips moment 
Um, and um, how do we win the category? How do we win the industry? Um, so for us, it's been um, an extraordinary uh, journey to see that these systems work in the consumer category. And it explains our enormous geographic footprint. You know, 52 markets were available in. And that's because our business has prioritised speed yes. over anything else. We'll panel bead and move the business to profitability and optimise all of our systems and so on in the longer term. Um, but speed, innovation, iteration of our products mm. is very you know, let's deploy a patch and improve the product if we get a new ingredient that cr creates a better uh, analogue of something that we're chasing. Um, that's really in the, the DNA of the Liars business. It's in the esprit de corps of the people in the business um, and we're seeing the results of it. So um, really, we think Liars will be a really interesting case study for how to do this outside of the tech sector um, for the world, we hope, in, in the coming years. You know, I think this is really, really fascinating that you kind of mentioned this because I, I was literally talking about a week ago about the uh, the mistake that um, entrepreneurs, founders, co-founders, product managers, you know, anyone who has to have a creative control over a product from ideation to delivery to scalability um, is unfortunately they think about the software and tech world as a unidimensional uh, bubble where, where when it is. Uh, but there are extremely large examples in the world uh, which show that you can take that Silicon Valley tech mechanism of, as you say, burning through capital, prioritizing scalability and speed and, and, and um, uh, you know, also having that kind of micro adjustability in your product, um, in your in your product manufacturing. Uh, so you're able to make those iterative uh, developments rather than uh, having a terrible relationship with your factory. Um, and trading that off with uh, with with, with um, uh, you know high uh, high production, for example, you know just knocking out loads and loads of stuff, and then it taking six months to make or twelve months to make a small a small change in the in the product line, um, and I think that's really quite interesting. I mean, you know, Tesla really showed us that mm. um, we can take that tech model and put it in probably the most anti tech company. You know, the car industry is known. Um, for being just not providing value to the consumer uh, and not moving very fast when it comes to technological developments. Uh, I mean, th there are there are technological developments that Mercedes made in the early 90s with regards to a Tiptronic um, uh, automatic gearbox where cars still exist today, new cars exist today where they don't have that. You know, so it's, it's, it's notorious for doing stuff like that. But yet, we were, I mean, there was an interesting thing that I read, which was if the if the car industry moved at the same speed as the technology industry, then today cars should be traveling three times the speed of light. <laughs> That's an extraordinary statistic. Oh, wow. I'm just thinking about that. That's not possible. That's absolutely um... <laughs> not possible. That is absolutely. There's a reason why we call the speed of light the universal speed, uh, the universal speed limit. You know exactly, <laughs> but, but uh, look, know. we're not here to talk about theoretical physics. But exactly. what's really interesting is that the consumer products category has this antiquated production-first style to it as well. So, particularly in the industry that we're competing in, 
Um, so if you look at the spirits industry, it's all about it's made in this way using this process that hasn't changed for hundreds of years. Yes. We bring our ingredients from this location and uh, it's made by this talent, this master distiller or in adjacent categories, a, a vigneron or a brewer. Mm. Um, and for us, that's that's a beautiful thing. People look for that heritage. They look for the providence, the expression of a part of the world, um, or they look for that individual expression. So they want to taste the craftsmanship of um, someone who's a master at putting mm. things together. It's that kind of a romantic and artisanship. Exactly, exactly. And we threw all of that out and mm. said, it's going to be okay, we think, for a brand to launch to market and say instead, hey, we stand for giving you the best possible quality product in a completely production agnostic way. And as long as we keep it natural and vegan, you will see this product improve over the years, much like we've seen, you know, the UX of Amazon or Facebook improve yeah. over the years or the features in Zoom that we're using today to speak Absolutely. to each other. Um, it's improved over the last couple of years. For us, we've created a consumer products brand that is like a software product and we deploy patches. Uh, we create new products alongside it under the brand. Mm. Um, and um, for us, that's in our DNA as a couple of nerds at the front of a CPG company. Um, but we think that the, the consumer out there is now accepting of this. And um, it's, it's a really exciting thing to have a product range not be held, not be held to, not beholden, sorry, to tradition or providence or the like, that quality. And for us in the liar space where we're creating alcohol analogs, Proximity to the original are the two only determinants with regards to how we approach the creation of the product. Uh, and everything else can fall by the wayside because we're delivering on that true to taste um, objective that our business has. Okay, that, that's, that's, that's really quite interesting. And what, one thing that I'd like to kind of just really quickly delve into with you is this whole idea of how, what is a non-alcoholic spirit? What, what, what exactly is it? Because when I mention it to people that, hey, I've, I've just got this non-alcoholic spirit, that the initial thing that comes into people's minds, and mine as well to a certain extent, is essentially what you're doing is you're taking a spirit and you're somehow extracting the alcohol out of it, maybe through distillery or whatever it might be, and you're distilling it and distilling it. And that's really all the work that you need to do to create a non-alcoholic spirit. Uh, but after talking to you, I understand that that may not necessarily be the case. Could you could you just let me know how, how you guys are kind of tackling creating your drinks? Yeah, look, there's there's look, there's two parts to your question there. So what is a non-alcoholic spirit? And then how do we create our spirits? So a non-alcoholic spirit, and this is still a legislatively grey area. Okay. Um, we are using a term from an older industry, the spirits industry, um, because we don't have a language to describe mm. our category. And indeed, you know, the consumers already picked it up and run with it. It's now out there in the common vernacular. It, the, the cat's out of the bag. It's, it's run off. Yeah. So well, these think, now and forevermore. We're using botanicals, right? That, that was the kind of word that they, that they were using. Is that also uh, robbed from the alcohol, alcohol industry? 
Yeah, I, th- I think you'll find on the pack that it says uh, distilled non-alcoholic spirit. Really? Um, okay. So, yeah, the prefix is their method of production and the suffix is a spirit Understood. and the middle part is non-alcoholic. Now, if you look at what makes up a spirit, um, it involves distillation and it involves ethanol being present. Now, clearly, we can't have ethanol present in a non-alcoholic spirit. So what's left? It's it's the flavour and it's the intensity of flavour. You have something that's um, hugely severe in terms of bouquet and flavour uh, on, the, on the palate. Um, and for, I think, us and everyone else in the industry, we capture the, excuse the pun, but we capture the spirit of a spirit um, in a non-alcoholic way. Um, so for us, you know, we're using that term um, and uh, the consumer's been receptive because it's an easy thing for them to understand. It's like, oh, I get it. This thing performs like a spirit in my beverage. Um, this thing I can take home and I can mix with, you know, soft drinks or juices to create something different. Um, and in the case of some non-alcoholic spirits, I can enjoy this neat as a beverage on its own. Mm. So there's still some debate there and there's some people that get very offended that non-alcoholic spirits exist. Okay. Um, and look, I refer to these people as ethanol fetishists. They're, um, they seem to be their sense of self-identity is tied up in the fact that, you know, you can drink a spirit that contains ethanol and somehow that defines typically your masculinity and, you know, it's approached from an academic perspective that's, you know, well, it can't be a spirit if it doesn't do X, Y, and Z. And that's hugely ignorant. The world doesn't stop. The world continues to evolve. New consumer products come onto the market and we've seen this play out before. We've seen plant milks yes, yeah. get hammered by the dairy industry and they're saying, hey, you can't call it a milk. Milk comes from the, from the feeding mechanism attached to a mammal. Mm. And but long before that argument's being made by the industry, the consumers picked up the term and run off with it and all of a sudden you have the oat milk category or the soy milk category or the almond milk category. It's already gone. So whilst regulation might happen to say, hey, you can't use the word spirit on your pack unless you have 40% alcohol, now and forever, people are going to refer to our products and products like our products as non-alcoholic spirits. The, the war's already lost before the, bat, the first battle's been fought because that's how language works and that's how consumers work. They reach for terms that exist and they adapt and evolve them to create something, to describe something new. So. Absolutely. That's where non-alcoholic spirits falls. Now, the second part of your question was, how do we make it? And for us, um, and the seed lips are a good example. They, as I understand it, and I'm not privy to how exactly how they make it, um, but they will make a, a spirit and then they will de-alcoholize it. Or how I think they do it is they distill the individual component, then de-alcoholize and then blend. Um, I'm not, I can't be quite sure. Um, so that's a very common approach for the vast majority of people that have products in this industry in that they use distillation and then they de-alcoholize either a finished spirit and then put it in a bottle or they de-alcoholize the components and then blend and then put in a bottle. So that's the most common way of doing it. Mm. And there's, I think your, your listeners might find interesting, how do you de-alcoholize yeah. a, uh, a spirit? So 
there's look there's some uh, there's some existing technology there's some new technology and then there's some novel and emergent technologies as well so the most simply the boiling point of alcohol is less than that of water so you can apply heat to remove alcohol from a base spirit if you want that's the easiest way of doing it mm. but the application of heat also uh, it's what we call denature so mm. it breaks apart very delicate chains typically carbon based um things like esters uh, which are benzene rings floating around and the thing that makes a banana taste like a banana or the thing that makes an orange taste like an orange is an ester a banana ester or an orange ester Understood. um and in a in a spirit the fermentation process when you know yeast is having a chew at the the sugars that are coming out of barley or rice or apple juice or whatever the the source material is it contains some kind of carbohydrate as yeast chews on it it throws out all of these esters that make and that give these beverages character um, amongst other other volatiles as well which i won't jump into but if you apply heat you destroy those esters and you uh, the way i like to describe it is you have a symphony orchestra and then by applying heat you remove the violins you remove the bassoons and you remove the timpani it can still make music but it's not as beautiful as it once was i understand then then it brings a so we go right how do we prevent this happening what are the processes we can use so using that same methodology of applying heat there's been a technology developed um and it's not particularly new but it's now more widely available um and that's called vacuum distillation so um, people are distilling spirits under a vacuum and again we're jumping into physics but if you put water under pressure its boiling point lowers and the same thing happens for um alcohol so we reduce the temperature at which alcohol comes off the base liquid um which keeps most of those um uh, esters and other volatiles floating around in the in the liquid intact so that's sort of breakthrough technology number 1 and for your listeners who might have tried non-alcoholic beers 20 years ago or non-alcoholic spirits 20 years ago and these have these things have been around for a very long time right that's one of the technologies that have improved the flavor of these significantly in a very compressed amount of time which is why they now taste so much better than they used to a while ago then we have reverse osmosis mm. um and we have something called spinning cone as well and I'll briefly chat about them reverse osmosis quite simply uses a membrane and pneumatic ram and can quite literally squeeze the alcohol out at room temperature uh it has a different density and um the liquid will pass through the membrane leaving the alcohol or vice versa and a centrifuge um alcohol has a higher gravity than almost all of the other ingredients as well in the beverage so if you put it in a centrifuge you can quite literally skim off the alcohol from the outside um to leave a non-alcoholic um solution intact now for us we looked at all three of these major technologies you know distillation or vacuum distillation we looked at um the spinning cone and we looked at reverse osmosis and all of them sucked we're like hey we can't get the type of beverage that we want by using this technology so we broadened our search and um one thing we realized is that the everyone's obsessing over ethanol 
as the solvent to carry flavors and perfumes. So um, we thought, hang on a second, we've got two different types of solubility out there in the world. We've got water solubility. So orange juice is a really great example of a water-soluble flavor and perfume. So floating around in that water is orange esters and other bits and pieces. That's water-soluble. And then you've got fat-soluble as well. So um, your bar of chocolate that you might enjoy has fat-soluble flavors and perfumes in it. And then, of course, we have ethanol solubility. So we sat down and we created liars with a blank piece of paper and said, how are we going to get non-alcoholic analogs as close as possible to the originals? Because that's what we wanted. We didn't want a providential expression or an individual expression. We wanted a frictionless interchange between a beverage that somebody liked and enjoyed and a non-alcoholic version of that. So we embraced all three technologies. We used essences, extracts, and we used distillation. Interesting. Uh, but then we bring all three together in a water base, which isn't easy, particularly when you're using fat-soluble flavors or perfumes. Now, normally that would create a, yeah. a fat and oil don't work. Everyone's shaking oil and fat together in high school chemistry and then watch them separate. Exactly. So we use a really, really cool technology, um, and only Lyres has access to this. It's a nanoemulsion technology. So um, we can get nanoparticles um, of uh, essences to float around in our uh, water base um, that deliver a far higher level of flavour intensity and uh, bouquet for perfume beyond anything else on the market. Um, so... We're really proud of that technology. And so for us, just to complete the circle here, Omar, is by embracing new technologies, you can vastly improve your product and your product experience. And that's what we set about doing because we're a bunch of nerds and we approached it like a technology company would approach a technology problem. And we looked at what are all of the things out there available to us to achieve our objective. And we built our stack as you would in the tech space, but we did that using food science, um, amazing ingredients that we draw from 39 different countries of origin um, and a beautiful process to bring them all together into a bottle. Yeah, I think that, oh, that that's actually super, super fascinating stuff because it's, yeah, you're totally right. Because when you were talking about the idea of thinking about what can perform a function that ethanol does, I mean, that's the kind of question that a molecular gastronomist would ask, would, would ask right? you know, going down that kind of like Heston Blumenthal uh, route, which is really, really quite fascinating. And it makes perfect sense. And it kind of makes me scratch my head. And it's like, hang on a second, like, why, why hadn't this been thought of before? Because molecular gastronomy is something that's been going on for 25 years. You know, people know how to, um, you know, perform these almost uh, weird food tricks on people's minds where something has the texture of something else but it's using a totally different ingredient and we're now seeing people do that with companies like impossible meat for example and beyond meat uh where you're able to to create this mimic um this frictionless mimic um you know i i think it's a big ask for companies to for people to ex uh, to expect a consumer to accept something absolutely new and a bit weird maybe to people's palates and say this is the new thing adjust your palate 
And I think it's really quite interesting of you as someone with a marketing background as well. You know the psychology of the consumer. You know it's a significantly more, um, uh, uh, you know, steeper climb to convince a consumer for a new uh, for a new flavor profile. Um, but I just want to kind of go back to that whole um, uh, uh, mimic thing that you mentioned, uh, where the the name that you guys have chosen as as really kind of um, uh, embodies that that whole mission that you guys have, right? Um, so. Could you just tell me what 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 how that how that comes into play? Sure. Um, and look, we look the I own a marketing agency back in Australia um, with some co-founders, and they did all the work on this. Um, but the word liars, um, it's a shortened form of the word liarbird. Um, and a, a liarbird's an Australian animal. It's a beautiful, beautiful animal with this incredible tail plume. Um, it's it's think about uh, a, a peacock, but uh, it's it's got this incredible tail plume that actually looks like a lyre, the traditional instrument, um, mm. hence the name. So it's Australian, and what's unique about the lyrebird is that it is nature's greatest mimic. Um, it can reproduce the bird song of anything that it hears in the wild. Typically, other other birds. Um, it's part of its mating ritual. It's part of its defense mechanism. I'm going to sound like a big scary bird of prey if some, something's come near me, um, or I'm going to impress, you know, a, a female, female bird, bird with look yep. at <laughs> look at all my talents and my ability to reproduce all these sounds. And they're so extraordinarily talented that they can produce human sounds. And there's yeah. a, a wonderful documentary on YouTube um, if you're interested. Um, it's the Attenborough clip, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. So, so David Attenborough, bless him, um, uh, talks about the lyrebird for about five minutes there. And you can see it reproducing mobile phone rings, the sound of a chainsaw, even the sound of the camera lens that's yeah. taking photos of it. Um, it. It reproduces it almost immediately on the spot. So for us as Australian founders creating mimics of spirits, and we now have 14 in the range, we thought, what a better what what better mascot is there than the Australian lyrebird to embody this? And then it sort of evolved from there, and um, so we called the brand Liars. And then we realised that we had the most incredible what we call a bar call in and mm. in, in the industry. So, you know, rather infamously, you could say a Jaeger bomb across a bar. And the bartender would roll their eyes and then give you a, a Jägermeister dropped into a thing of Red Bull. Um, you wouldn't ask for, can I get a shot of Jägermeister dropped into a glass of Red Bull? Sure. It, becomes a, it becomes a snappy bar call that becomes ubiquitous and it becomes very well known. It enters the, the vernacular. So for us, as a brand that's based on this frictionless interchange of spirits, one for the other, the most important part of that is drinks. So people have a favourite drink. They typically don't have a favourite spirit. I'm a gin guy. I'm a bourbon guy. That's not so much what happens. People have a drink that tends to define them. Um, and this was one of our big insights. And it's like, hey, I'll have a gin and tonic, but make it a liars. Or I'll have a liars old-fashioned. So we, we thought we had a, a chance for our brand to become the global bar call for I want a non-alcoholic version of this well-known drink that everyone knows how to make and that a lot of people love. 
And for us, we thought, wow, that's that's an incredible, incredibly powerful piece of, I guess, marketing um, and brand architecture. And you can look to categories like um, vacuum cleaners, for example. You're you're a Brit. Yep. Um, you don't refer to a vacuum cleaner as a vacuum cleaner. You say a Hoover. A Hoover. Yeah. I need to buy a new Hoover. The Hoover's broken. Yep. <laughs> or can you Hoover the ground, please? Yep. Um, or things. This also happens in um, I think out of the US or, or Britain, and say, "Hey, pass me a Kleenex." Now that could be any brand of tissue. Yeah. But the brand has become synonymous with the category. Mm. So Hoovers and Kleenexes. Um, so we're hoping and we're doing our best to ensure that I want a Liars X or I want an X drink that make it a Liars becomes how consumers approach the category and that in turn then benefits our brand. So that's how the whole brand came into being and, and why we ended up calling it Liars. You know, it's really funny because I, I remember uh, when I saw that clip of the lyre bird kind of mimicking some of these sounds, I, I was watching it with, I sent it to a friend of mine. And um, I was like, mate, you need to you need to check this out. This is next level stuff. Um, and he, he he watched it and he said, Omar, can you imagine what it's like for a guy in the middle of a jungle to hear a chainsaw noise coming towards them? Can you imagine what's going to happen to that guy? <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. I, so I, I do remember was... bushwalking back in Australia as a as a as a kid, and there's a bird there that sounds exactly like an infant crying oh, for Jesus its mother, Christ. and you're, you're like, "Oh my god, what's going on?" There's and a kid in the middle of a forest. <laughs> there's a kid in the middle of a forest, and getting off the uh, getting off the track, and you know, some of the older, wiser heads were there, just like, "No, mate, it's... yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> come, come inside and deal with the python." <laughs> <laughs> or the spider. Yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> or, or anything else that might kill you that just happens to be chilling in the living room. That's right. That's right. Gosh. Um, but um, but yeah. no, it's it's, it's really interesting ready. that, uh, you know, I, <laughs> exactly. But I, I, I love this idea of make it a liars. I think, I think, you know, integrating yourself within the bar vernacular is, is such a great, a great thing because it was, even with the whole seed lip thing, uh, that was the first experience that I had with a non-alcoholic spirit. And Jesus Christ, it was the weirdest, most embarrassing thing ordering that at, at, at the bar that I went to. Because it was made to be an unusual experience. You know, you have to kind of explain to the barista or the mixologist or whoever it might be, oh, could you do it like this or could you do it like that? And there was no real transferable way of doing it. Even when I'm asking for a gin and tonic, you know, it was very much the case of, oh, how much do you want? How do you want it to do? Or, or, and it was just like, oh, leave it. Give me a cranberry juice. Don't worry about it. You know, it was just, uh, it was one of those things. And the one thing that um, I find really fascinating is the change of um, change of requirements from the consumer. And the, the way that, and we've discussed this previously, is that this, this whole change of uh, social environments, where before it was very much the pub, um, and now, unfortunately, the pub is not really uh, as fashionable as it once was. Uh, now mm. people are really looking for particularly the professional millennial, um, the millennial who's maybe, you know, uh, got their own company or maybe they're working a, a professional job in a nine to five. They find that mm -hmm. time is, um, you know, a very valuable asset. And if they are going to be going out for a drink with friends, 
They want to spend it in the best place that they could possibly afford. Mm. Um, we're now starting to value experiences more than stuff uh, as yeah. well. So th- this this whole idea, this whole lifestyle requirement is is totally, totally changing. And it's changing very, very quickly, far quicker than than anything previously, I believe. Um, yeah. The same way where, and I gave you this example that, um, you know, to excuse yourself from the table uh, to smoke a cigarette uh, only mm. only two decades ago, uh, if you were left on the table, you were the weirdo, you know, but um, now if you excuse yourself to smoke a cigarette at, the, at a dinner table, it's very, very unusual. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And look, I think we we're probably on the cusp of seeing uh, if the trend is continues at the same pace, you know, when somebody orders a steak, you might have every head turned at the table going, why are you eating animal? Uh, I had That's... that experience uh, last week, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I ordered a burger yeah. and the gentleman that I was mm. with uh, proclaimed that he was a vegetarian um, and it made yeah. me feel very unusual. Yeah. I had that for the first time. Yeah. And then we're, we potentially we can see this in the, the alcohol category as well. Um, where you know people choose to imbibe um and we might start to see their their choices judged by peer groups if you know we see that same flip that's happened in tobacco me personally i'm not sure how i feel about that um you know people's choices are their own and i think the the archetypal sanctimonious vegan um is (laughs) is well understood out there um and it's um it's something that I think you know has probably slowed the adoption of you know plant-based diets. Um, but this is this is very common for early adopters in any consumer category. They're very, very passionate people. Absolutely. They're highly, highly engaged. They are evangelical with regards to their choice. And then as it approaches mainstream, mm. and we look at a typical consumer adoption curve, that that lovely S shape. Um, we start to see it become more broadly accepted. And then we have what are called the laggards. And you could also say that the the tobacco industry, at least in the West, is in the laggard phase mm. um, where people have gone through their, um, their consumer adoption curve, come down the other side generation by generation, and it's only people that are late or unfashionable or are not conforming to group dynamics that smoke tobacco are starting to have these the vast majority of humanity start to look at them and go that's not something that we support and yes. they make it known by body language or otherwise so yeah like i said it's it's not impossible to see a future where you know we see that with regards to choices around meat and we may see that with regards to choices around alcohol as well mm. now omar you're a you're a teetotaler you, you don't yes. drink at all i'm a mindful drinker which means i'm very conscious of my choices mm. and i still i still enjoy alcohol um and alcoholic beverages um but for me far less frequently because my priorities in life have significantly changed mm. um but there's more and more and more people like you emerging but the what's really interesting is that the source of the growth of this category is coming from people like me. So the people who are becoming flexible with 
the their relationship with alcohol. Um, so the flexitarian equivalents of booze, if I can put it sure, that way. Sure, sure. And we have a saying at Liars, and that's our drinkers are drinkers. And people are using the products that we make and products in adjacent categories like non-alcoholic beer or non-alcoholic wines. Mm. They're using it to moderate their relationship with alcohol rather than replace their relationship with alcohol for the most part. So whilst there's people out there like you, and that's our heartland consumer, they're the people who found us and adopted us first, Mm. all of the growth is coming from people that are changing their relationship with alcohol on a day-to-day basis, on a mealtime-to-mealtime basis, or they're doing dry months, or they're saying, hey, I'm going to be sober for the next couple of months because I've got you know, my MBA exams coming up or I have a goal that I want to achieve through F45. Um, any number of reasons um, people are leaving the alcohol category. And what we're seeing, interestingly, is for many years now is this slow decline of alcohol as in volume. So if you took all the alcohol and all the alcoholic beverages and put it in one place mm. and had this ginormous swimming pool of alcohol that's consumed across the world and by a country, mm. it's slowly reducing year on year and it's filling up less and less and less. So reg- removing the category trends in and out of, you know, hard seltzers are booming, traditional beers in decline, removing all of that out, ethanol consumption is decreasing. Sure. And what we realize that's really, really interesting is that people think it's a slow decline, but what we've observed, it's actually a cadence where people will drink their existing amount and then they'll leave the category for dry January or dry July if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. Then they'll pop back into the category and then they'll leave it again for another month to pursue a fitness goal or do a team challenge or do something at life and then back to how much they've drunk again so if people are leaving the alcohol category for three months of the year that's a 25 percent decline in that person's individual alcohol consumption because of a cadence rather than a slow decline that we think is happening yes so that's how the behavior is manifesting in people that are flexible and then we of course have people like you omar that say in fact alcohol no longer has a place in my life Mm. it's not worth it I'm not happy to make the exchange for, you know, one drink um, uh, for whatever penalty that you pay personally, um, fuzziness, bad sleep. Um, you might be concerned with the, 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 the medical issues. And I think we're starting to get a, a far better understanding of exactly what the long-term damaging effects of alcohol are. Um, and I can't help but think we're, we're in the 1970s all over again and this body of knowledge is starting to emerge with regards to tobacco and it's becoming more and more ubiquitous and it's people are stopping and thinking about their choice rather than simply reaching for an alcoholic beverage because it's a Friday night and that's what they've always done um, or it's a team event and that's how you bond as a team over mm. booze by lowering social inhibitions and so on. So, yeah, it's it's as a marketeer, we're trained to observe human behaviour and I can't help but think history is repeating here in this category. Um, and where liars fits in is we help make that choice easier yes. and we do it in two ways. You, you don't have to give up your favourite drink. If you love a gin and tonic or if you love a Italian-style spritz, we're there for you. 
with something so close, closer than Diet Coke is to Coke. We can deliver that experience to you um, so you don't need to miss out that ritual moment, that, that moment of human connection over a beverage, but you now have control. You have the choice to say, actually, I want my drink, but in my way. I want it yes. without alcohol. And um, we make it easy for the hospitality sector to adopt their, their pubs or their bars to cater for people like yourself. And, you know, it just used to be the cranberry juices all Omar would order when he walked in. But yeah. now with Liars, um, you can order from the cocktail menu anything you like. And if you make it a Liars or ask for a Liars version of whatever the cocktail happens to be, the magic purple butterfly, you can have your Liars magic purple butterfly. And you can have a drink in your hand that looks and smells and tastes exactly like the original or extremely close to the original. But what we've discovered is really fascinating. We're also selling integration and a lack of uh, or a a way to escape the anxiety of being the guy there with the cranberry juice in your hand or the guy there with the Diet Coke in your hand when everyone else has an old-fashioned. So all of a sudden your choices are integrated into the occasion as well. They remain yours, but you don't have to have that awful conversation that a vegetarian used to have about 20 years ago as to why they're not ordering a steak and they are ordering the tofu burger and then it becomes a half hour conversation about their choices and dissecting them and so on so yeah i'm really keen to hear about your experience because you're one of our heartland consumers that we target and then more interestingly how people like you are influencing the main body of consumers as well yeah, it's 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 one of those things where, you know, it seems and, and kind of when I when I think about it, I'm like, you know, are we now having this 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 interesting decrease in ethanol consumption? And I, I think that this is only going to speed up as as brands like yourself offer better and more alternatives. And I think that's always been the problem is, you know, you always had these kind of non-alcoholic beers. And I'm kind of remembering from from my experiences uh, when I would want to feel included with my friends. And now my friends were always extremely, during university, they were always very mindful. Omar doesn't drink, so let's not make him feel uncomfortable and drink, um, which is a fairly rare situation. At the end of the day, when someone goes out for a drink, they're going to drink. Um, and I am absolutely not, the I'm the kind of individual that prefers to avoid confrontation. Um mm-hmm. Uh, I don't eat pork myself. If someone wants to order mm-hmm. pork, then for God's sake, order it and eat it and enjoy it. You know, that's your choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, yeah. I absolutely align myself with you in this danger of uh, the consensus influencing individuals' uh, choices. I, I really align myself with you on that, to be completely honest. I think yeah. if someone chooses not to drink, it should absolutely be their choice. Uh, if mm-hmm. somebody chooses to eat meat, eat meat. If someone doesn't, don't. Absolutely your choice, no worries. But you should be aware of what your choice, what the consequences of your choice are causing, not only for yourself, but environmentally as well. Uh, and for after sure. you've educated yourself, I think it's uh, your choice is your choice. That's one of the freedoms that we are afforded of being in a country like we are in. Uh, and we should absolutely value that and be grateful for that. So I totally, totally agree with you in that respect. 
uh, and I think that's yeah. important. For sure. There's this, um, we've observed this before, there's this conflation of your choice of consumption with your either your masculinity or mm. your willingness to be part of a, a group. Indeed. Um, and we, alcohol has this as does, you know, and the animal protein market as well. So, you know, if you, if you don't eat steak, you're not a man. If you don't have a beer with the boys, you're not a man. Yes. And um, there's a weird, weird masculine conflation there with alcohol in the West um, and it's, it's, I'd recognize, um, but I don't understand particularly, um, some of the other cultures, but I suspect it's there as well. And then of course, um, there's also this conflation of a willingness to bond and deepen friendship or human Indeed. relationships. And, and it requires alcohol to catalyze that and make that happen. Yeah, to kind and of if you refuse alcohol, exactly. So if you, if you refuse alcohol, you're also refusing the friendship of the group and the friendship of the boys, uh, or the friend, even more so the friendship of the girls, you know? Yeah. So we're seeing this strange conflation that's sat there for a very long time, but it's starting to crack and splinter and fall apart, much like vegetarianism has Indeed. happened. It's now a simple choice that people respect and they don't want a half an hour conversation to attack your choice because you've made a choice. They just go, oh, that person's a vegetarian, move on. Absolutely. And I hope that's where our category gets to. It's like, oh, you're not drinking? No problem. But you see, Let's I, chat. Think, I, I, I think I think it's even more interesting than that, because for, for me, I think it's because not only are individuals starting to accept things like vegetarianism, uh, but also industries, uh, outlets, um, you know, uh, places where you shop at and buy your meat, places where you go and go out to eat. You know, these these are the places now that are now offering those kind of alternatives and substitutes, whereas mm -hmm. before it would very much be a thing that, you know what, I don't really feel like, you know, uh, having a steak today, but that's all that this place serves. Or I wish they had a vegetarian alternative that wasn't a lettuce salad um, or, 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 or a tofu burger. I wish they had something mm -hmm. better, but unfortunately they don't. So I guess I'll have to have this chicken burger or meat burger. You know, I, I think that there are individuals who have always had a tendency to want to maybe change their choices or their lifestyle, but haven't had the tools or, or, or sufficient or satisfactory alternatives. Um, I, I know that because, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those experiences where, you know, with vegetarianism and plant-based diets, we've had this extraordinarily large spike in the last couple of years. And I genuinely believe it's because we now have products on the market that support that lifestyle. Um, you know, people, I don't think people would, so many meat eaters wouldn't want to give up meat if there wasn't something that tastes exactly like meat. So, yeah. you know, I, th I think liars are doing something really interesting that no other product has really hit apart from probably the non-alcoholic beer, uh, which is essentially yeah. exactly what beer is just without the alcohol. Um, I just I don't think that non-alcoholic wines or anything like that have really been able to hit the spot the same way that um, a real a real um, uh, uh, Bordeaux has or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that liars are really now providing those options and those really great seamless alternatives. 
so for, for me, it's very much been a situation of me now wanting to explore the mixology and drinks environment purely because I have tools that, are, that I know are fabulous, that have now been rated by people who know their stuff and awarded at shows that are competing against the alcohol versions, the original, ver the OG, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, to me, that's now an extraordinarily encouraging factor. It's kind of like, you know, here's the tools to do what you want now. What do you want to do? Do you want to drink alcohol? Do you not want to drink it? What do you want to do? And I think that's the really interesting thing. Um, to say that Liars is the health conscious drink, I think is a total you know, misnomer. I don't think it is very healthy, to be completely honest, but it's significantly healthier than the alcoholic version. And this is one thing that I've kind of spoken to you previously is that, you know, one thing that I am, I am very, very passionate about is I, I don't have very deeply held opinions, nor do I have very deeply held beliefs. Uh, I'm very much, this is what I think. Uh, if you've got some more information that may help me to go towards a different idea, then I'd totally be up for that. So please tell me if I'm wrong. Um, but I think it's totally important. And what I am very passionate about is people just having information available and educating themselves. And I think yeah. that there's really been this terrible thing with, happening within the alcohol industry, something similar that happened in the sugar industry in the 60s and the 70s, uh, where the sugar industry paid laboratories and scientists that was so-called independent to create this kind of um, this environment that said sugar is good and fat is bad. Um, where we now learn, you know, several decades later uh, that that was in mm. fact a marketing ploy. Um, none of it was true. And in fact, fat is actually quite good for you uh, if you have it in its uh, unsaturated forms, in its natural forms. Mm. Um, and it's a very important part of our diet. Uh, whereas sugar, on the other hand, is actually quite terrible for you and you really need to manage that. And it's in bloody everything, including your bread. So it's, um, yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. And I think also the milk industry is a very uh, similar example as well. You know, we are now learning that things like cow milk is actually not very good for you. Um, and in fact, it's quite high in estrogenic properties. Uh, so for men, uh, having cow milk is actually not very good for you. Um, which is where we have now this, this, this idea that, hang on a second, maybe I do like cow milk, but do I want to, as a man, do I want to raise my estrogen levels? Probably not. So maybe I should take an educated decision and start to enjoy some of these nut milks, like an almond milk or something like mm -hmm. that. So like I said, I think education and correct information should be at the heart of everything. And unfortunately, the alcohol industry has been perpetuating a few lies, um, whether it be that a small amount of ethanol is actually good for you. And they're kind of basing this on practices that are essentially medieval, um, where they would provide patients with a small amount of alcohol to cure something like bowel irritability, um, <laughs> which is which is absolute madness. I mean, this is going back to the days where we didn't have doctors. We had uh, traveling barbers. Are you familiar with this idea? Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. Absolute madness. I it's... mean, this, this is this is going back to a time where if you had scarlet fever, you were dead. Um, mm. You know, I think they would treat scarlet fever by uh, making you gargle some kind of acid or something like that. Like, what, what's that all about? Yeah. 
you know, you, you, you cannot use that kind of environment and circumstances to base scientific statements on. Mm. Um, and I, I, I think it's really fear. I, I really do believe that. And it reminds me of the automobile industry. It really does. Uh, the same way that I think probably Volkswagen absolutely shit themselves with the rise of uh, electric mm. vehicles. So they decided yeah. to convince people that their cars were significantly more efficient than they actually were. Uh, which yes. caused the entire emissions scandal. You know, they 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 I saw recall. this kind of change happening, and I think maybe the alcohol industry are starting to shit themselves a little bit as well, and perpetuating these falsities like ethanol is good for you. Um, I I I think I told you before that there was an interesting study which showed that people who are have been heavy drinkers, or people who mm. drink, or even people people who are heavy drinkers, all the way to people who drink recreationally. A small mm -hmm. amount of their favorite drink every now and again is actually quite good for them, not because of the ethanol. The ethanol is very bad, but it's good in managing cortisol because of serotonin release. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I enjoy a cigar. Cigars are not very good mm -hmm. for you. Um, but because of the serotonin release that I receive, it helps me relax. I'm with my friends. We're talking mm -hmm. about great things. It's a good environment. Mm -hmm. So uh, for my health, it's probably a good idea that I don't rob myself of that experience um yeah and i think people are starting to learn about these things now but i think people have mm. known about this for a while that's the thing uh, the vaping industry is probably a great example right people have known forever that cigarettes are absolutely shit for you they're terrible uh, they, they they are literally uh, i remember a huge campaign that was running when i was in primary school which is that uh, there are carcinogens in cigarettes that Hitler used in the gas chambers. Um, yeah. Oh man, you know. yeah, that's uh, that's terrifying. But it's, I, it's, I recall, um, it's if you are a smoker, it's the one best thing you can do for your health is quit smoking. It's not start yeah. exercising, not drink less, not eat vegetables. Stop smoking. It's the single best thing you can do to improve your health outcome. You are, you are, you are totally, totally on the money with that. And, and in fact, another interesting fact that I found out about a month ago is that um, uh, if you were to stand in Chernobyl um, mm -hmm. for, I think, two or three hours, and by, by, by Chernobyl, I mean in the bloody factory, I mean in Reactor 4, mm -hmm. you know, in the center of where the damn explosion happened, uh, yeah. you will still not be as radiated as a smoker's lungs are. Yeah, well, that's extraordinary. <laughs> that's an amazing insight. Look, the um, this is. But it kind I've of it got kind two of feelings about it, this. It, it kind of explains the the explosion of the vaping industry is that the moment people had an alternative, we just had yeah. people quitting smoking in droves and kind of going to this healthier option. I mean, that's now been debunked now with deposits of mineral oil in people's lungs and stuff like that. But I think I, I think you know what I'm saying with regards to these alternatives. Oh, for sure. And look, the just to close out the chat on vaping, it, it also recruited um, an enormous number of young people um, back to being nicotine addicted, whereas yes. the generation prior uh, had abandoned tobacco and nicotine entirely. So you know, we've created uh, an, a an endemic. Yeah. Yes, in in countries where vaping is is permissible, um, but to come back to alcohol, um, look, I think the the lobbying power of you know the food and beverage industrial complex is absolutely breathtaking. Agreed. Um, 
so an alcohol product and again i remind you and your listeners i am a mindful drinker i enjoy alcohol yes. um not to excess and i used to um but it's still one of the only i think the only food and beverage product where you don't need to declare your ingredients the lobbying power of the alcohol industry means that you don't need to put a nutritional information panel on the back label of your product but every single other product that you buy in a supermarket in a pharmacy in a in a store has to have that level of transparency but for some reason we've managed to or the alcohol industry has managed to avoid that i think that's a a very interesting um point and shows you the power of that industry um on the healthy versus not healthy and i think the some of the case studies that are used um particularly around red wine being good for you that's um a resveratrol study yes um and, and there's an extraordinary amount of red wine required to deliver the resveratrol um to deliver the benefit that you get but the flip side of that is the extraordinary amount of damage from the enormous amounts of ethanol that yeah. you need to consume to get that resveratrol into your system but these are the sorts of things that are picked up and prosecuted um and I'd probably say rather unfairly by the industry you can't pick one aspect of a beneficial component in a beverage yes. and then say ubiquitously and holistically this beverage is good for you um now for me oh, i think alcohol dangerous. indeed indeed so um it's it's i think alcohol has a place in society i think it always will um i think we will consume a lot less of it mm. um and i think you're right people are becoming a lot more clear-eyed and they're starting to understand holistically how things like sugar and animal proteins and um beverage ethanol have adverse effects on the system and they're now more mindful of their choice now for me personally i know that the alcohol that i'm consuming when i choose to consume alcohol beautiful glass of chablis mm. to go with my oven roasted fish sure that's my choice i'm making it mindfully i'm aware but i'm exercising my choice but i think things where there's no nutritional information panel um i think the um i don't think we need to be binary which is we remove it completely um and you 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 as a cigar smoker is a, is an interesting uh analog as well here so you're your teetotal you don't consume alcohol but you do consume nicotine yes uh, which is your blood stream through the soft lining of your cheeks mm. and you're feeling stimulated and relaxed and so on so um choices i don't think should be removed from people but awareness yes. and transparency i think people are entitled to retain those and expect those from the industries that are supplying them products absolutely and i i think i would probably add a third is responsibility as well you know is responsibility not only to your consumer but also to the environment that you're producing your product in as well i think is really important you know whether it's sustainable uh, responsibility or environmental responsibility whatever it might be um and i i think unfortunately just a lot of these um um 
a, a lot of these companies are now creating these horrendous greenwashing campaigns, um, which are there to potentially distract uh, the consumer from from the damage that their product is is doing. Um, yeah, and there's um, yeah. there's actually a, a term I like, Omar. Uh, it's called woke washing. Um, yeah, well, and it yeah, tends to, yeah, perfect. It, it tends to encapsulate greenwashing. Everything. Um, we, we saw last month, which is Pride Month, you know, every single company on LinkedIn changed their logo to a rainbow version of their mm. logo. And, um, you know, it's it's all part of that, that virtual signaling um, that may not translate to commercial practice. Yes. Um, and... That's where I think people are getting frustrated where companies say one thing but continue to do some another thing. So yeah, it's um I think companies aren't stupid. I'm a marketeer. I know the sorts of data and other things that they, me- they they measure and they look for. And if environmental impact is important to a consumer, they're like, well, we need to have a product. So yes. they'll make they'll call it green or they'll call it plant-based or they'll call it you know, X, Y, and Z, but the core business may continue to run how it's always run. Yes. Um, But I think with, by the same token, I think that the weight of public expectation is now falling on the shoulders of, of, you know, corporations around the world. Um, We're seeing activist institutional shareholders, particularly Mm -hmm. pension funds that represent enormous contributions by the public that are helping precipitate meaningful change in commercial entities to bring it into alignment with the expectations of the community. So there are examples out there still of corporations behaving very badly, led by amoral individuals in the pursuit of profit. But we're also starting to see um, businesses align themselves with the expectations of the community and whilst they will continue to be profitable and commercially viable they're doing so by treading lightly um, and by embracing humanity so i have hope and as long as we keep um as long as we keep the pressure on and for our corporates to align with community expectations i think we'll see some real change over the next few years i i i I totally agree with you and i couldn't have said it better myself i i think it's tremendously um uh admirable um uh, of yourself and the team at liars to to really understand that there is a uh, a systemic problem here that that no one seems Mm. to understand what why is uh the consumption of alcohol so linked with with masculinity uh, why is uh, why do we have to drop our c- civil inhib uh, our, our 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 civility uh, in a social environment to be able to strengthen our bonds with one another? These are all really deep, fairly psychological, potentially philosophical uh, questions that really don't have an answer. But I think that you guys have chosen the best solution, which is rather than poncing about thinking about an answer, you guys have decided to think of a solution. And I think that solution is truly a frictionless change and an alternative uh, provided to those individuals who say, hang on a second, Uh, particularly as the world is becoming a kind of productive frenzy. And we've really seen that being strengthened uh, during COVID-19, where overnight, all of a sudden, people turned into uh, fitness gurus for some reason, um, which was the weirdest thing, right? 
um, mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden, the moment the lockdown was announced, everyone was a productive expert, a productivity expert. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing ever. <laughs> But yeah. um, I know um, I got I got prison fit during uh, during lockdown. Yeah. Um, that's for sure. That's brilliant. Prison look at, fit. Look at, yeah. <laughs> look at photos of myself from two years ago, and yeah, it's it's quite incredible the the, the change that you know the pandemic precipitated. Um, I didn't learn to bake sourdough. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm or banana bread. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think um, one of the interesting things, and, and you had this experience uh, just before our meeting, um, is we saw the rise and rise of gastronomy at yes. home. And the untold story is the rise and rise of mixology Absolutely. at home. If you look at cookbook sales on Amazon during the pandemic, they absolutely fly. They rocketed, But yeah. mixology bo uh, books as well, like how to prepare cocktails, et cetera, flew as well. Yes. And it's totally changed the, the landscape of channel marketing strategy. So I'll quickly define that for your listeners. A channel is a different route to market for the same product. So Coca-Cola, as an example, you can buy it at the petrol station. Mm. You can get it at the wedding on your table. You can go to the supermarket and take it home with you. And beverage alcohol has, um, has uh, three main channels. One is the on-premise. So you go to a venue and you order alcohol. Sure. One is the off-premise where you go to a place and you take alcohol home to consume. Hmm. Um, and then there's direct-to-consumer where you order it online and it's delivered to you. What we discovered during the pandemic was the creation of a fourth channel and we termed it the in-premise, not the off-premise or on-premise, but the in-premise. So where people would order their product either in the off-premise or direct-to-consumer, they would then create hospitality-like mixology experiences in their homes yes. they elevated their drinking experience at home um, and it benefited our brand enormously because people wanted this elevated beverage experience at the end of their day or something to do um, after they'd finished their thousand push-ups getting prison fit yep. um, <laughs> and we saw our sales absolutely skyrocket during this time Amazing. and um we lent in, we saw this thing happening. We're like, wow, this is amazing. And it, we had this idea to save a lot of jobs in our company. Um, you met with Danny, we spoke about it at the beginning of this chat um, momentarily, but at the beginning of the pandemic, the entire hospitality sector was locked down. Absolutely. We had 30 odd brand ambassadors like Danny out there in the world that all of a sudden had nothing to do. No one to call on and see, no one to train and educate, no one to advocate to for this category to exist in their hospitality venue. So they're all at home. So we had the idea we would turn them to in-home mixology trainers. So Amazing. you could buy two bottles of Liars and you can get a one-on-one -on -one via Zoom. We quickly spun up a, you know, a, a, a tape-together tech stack using Calendly and Zoom sure. and we threw one of our resources at it to coordinate. But... Whenever anyone bought a product, they had a one-on-one -on -one mixology lesson for half an hour with a Danny or equivalent. Mm. And they went through the same experience that you just went through the hour before this call. 
And it built extraordinary brand loyalty because people had all of a sudden had a human interaction with the brand. Mm. Uh, They'd helped them debunk the fact that I can't make these at home. Now I can and I have the skills. And it ignited curiosity to explore mixology more broadly in the non-alcoholic sense. And because we have a range of 14, we found that these people came back to our brand and bought bigger and bigger baskets um, with more and more of our um, spirits in them in order to create a broader range of non-alcoholic spirits at home or non-alcoholic cocktails at home. So, yeah, the the in-premise is now a thing. And in closing, I think it's going to be sticky. I think we've seen the pandemic dramatically shaped the world and some of the things that we've adopted in this time will not end after the world returns to normality as and when that would be. They're now interwoven into how we consume and we consume in the home with a more developed skill set than we had at the beginning of the pandemic. Yes, and I, I think not only a more developed skill set, but also a more developed palette as well. I, th- I think as you're mm. able to control exactly how you're making things, you start to really be able to tweak uh, and almost equalize your, your palette. You understand, oh, I like a, a bit more bitterness. I like a bit more sweetness. And all of a sudden, just what the bartender slides over to you is not good enough. It's not bespoke enough. Um, and I think this is, I think you're totally right. It does cause a bit of a sticky situation now because I've seen something very similar happen in the coffee environment. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know, but I'm a coffee maniac. I'm a coffee nerd. You mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I've been very fortunate to be able to talk to some of the most well-known, highly expertised individuals, um, highly expert individuals in the entire coffee industry. Um, and the one thing that I've been doing is kind of educating my audience on better coffee. Um, and particularly since lockdown, espresso machine sales went through the roof the same way that you guys yeah. were, were seeing this really interesting thing. And a lot of uh, people were using my episodes to kind of guide them through what they should get out of coffee. Uh, and it's gotten to a point now where I get maybe several hundred messages um, uh, every month of just people saying to me that, I'm in a bit of a sticky situation because I'm now creating such good coffee at home that I no longer want to go to the cafe because they're not they're not up to scratch. They're not up to par. Mm-hmm. Uh, I no longer want to go to my local coffee bar because I know that what I'm making at home is significantly better. And I think this is really interesting because I had that effect when I finished with Danny. I sent you a voice message to let you know that I mm-hmm. just finished. And I also had a word with my with my other half. And I was like, listen. I want to make a bar at home now, you know, um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, 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 I want to kind of be able to experiment and see if I can make my own drinks. You know, I want to see what I can do with the liars range. I think this would be really interesting. And she's just like, all right. Yeah. Okay. You know, do, do what you want. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, how does it fit into your, your moments of, I think you termed them where, you know, the serotonin release happened, um, where how does, what is your with a cigar beverage of choice made using the Liars portfolio? Is it dark and rich? Does it include our coffee liqueur or our American malt, which is our homage to bourbon? What complements that cigar and then elevates the cigar experience even more that you're having? Um, we're seeing that a lot. 
that that is actually a really fascinating uh, uh, question, and it, it it's it's these kind of questions that start getting the 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 curious mind going, right? It's just like, hang on a second, like I normally settle for for maybe an espresso or flat white or something while I'm smoking my cigar. Now all of a mm-hmm. sudden, maybe I could uh, create a dark and spicy, or I could create a Negroni or something like that, and maybe that would go. And then it gets even deeper. It's like. This uh, cigar is super heavy and really bold. Maybe I could make a lighter mm-hmm. drinker. This cigar is really light. How do I make a darker drink? Okay, I need to call Danny. This is really interesting. You know, so yep. it's um, it's it, it it really allows people, I think, to to tap into a lifestyle that has been uh, destructive to your health, um, and also um, socially exclusive. Um, which now, because of what what you guys are producing, is now becoming health conscious and socially inclusive. And you, you guys are also paying great attention to really looking after your employees as well and creating a culture and environment, not only for your employees, but also for your customers, that yeah. is is welcoming and friendly and warm. And yeah. I think these goals and missions and ethics and morals that you guys are working with the missions that you guys are working with, I think are just totally, totally admirable. And I, I, I couldn't have more respect for what you've been able to achieve, Mark. I, I, I really do mean that. I, I have a tremendous amount of admiration for you, not only as an entrepreneur um, and a marketeer, but also just as a human being as well. I think I think you're doing a truly great thing for the future. Thank you, Emma. I'm very grateful when people say things like that to me, so heartfelt. And... At the uh, at the risk of this turning into a love fest, um, <laughs> I have to return and say I'm an extraordinary fan of your program. Um, I've definitely found a kindred spirit on this journey, um, someone who's as, I guess, incessantly curious as myself. And um, I love that you've done something with that curiosity. You've, you've weaponized it and you've turned it into a way to prosecute ignorance and uh, you're delivering it to the world. So, yeah, enormous respect to you as well. And I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you as part of this um, and I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed our chat today. Oh, Mark, thank you so much. Honestly, that really means a lot coming from you. And, you know, I have to say, I know that you are, spread extremely thin and honestly there are some times where i hear your schedule and i'm just thinking jesus christ how is this guy surviving you know but at the end of the day it's absolutely evident that you love what you're doing um you have extremely strong motivators um uh, and 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 a really fabulous work ethic um you know i think you understand yourself very very well uh how how hard you can work and when to maybe uh lean off the gas a little bit um, and yeah, definitely something bit. that uh, when I when I when I kind of look at yourself, I'm like, you know what, that's really interesting. Maybe I could implement that into my into my work ethic. So, you know, huge huge props, mate. Honestly, and uh, as I said, I know you're spread extremely thin. Time is a very valuable asset for you, so it really does mean um, so so much that you've decided to spend a little bit of that with me today. So I really honestly, it's been absolutely fabulous. Um, the, the pleasure has has really been mine. I, I, I can't expre- express that enough. And look, likewise, um, and I'll share with you something that I share with my uh, executive assistants and my, my close team is that as the CEO of a business, your time is the most valuable, but my humanity and everyone's humanity is absolutely equal in this business. So 
Um, I feel the same uh, way and thank you for sharing some of your time with me and it's um, it's been really, really fun. And um, I've, had a, I've had a really great chat and um, some of that relaxation I've managed to get from this really deep and engaging conversation, which I don't do enough of. And uh, I'm really pleased that you've given me this gift as well. Oh, well, I have to say, Mark, I'm really excited to have you on again. Um, uh, I think we've got a few ideas that we've been thinking of that uh, may make very interesting um, uh, sequel episodes and, and whatnot. So I'm very, very excited to have you on again. And I'm sure my audience will be as well. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been, it's been one of my favourite episodes. So thank you so much. Thanks, Omar. Great to chat. Bye.